Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Rate Specialists, Giles Gale, Head of European Rate Strategy, Blake Gwynn, Head of Front End Rate Strategy in the Americas, and Theo Chapsalis, Head of UK Rate Strategy. Welcome back. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, we were all super excited for 2021, but it so far doesn't feel that different uh, to 2020, particularly, I'd say, on the bad news front. Uh, we've still got quite worrying COVID trends. Here in the UK, we're back in a full national lockdown. Uh, and although the US is, um, well, sort of officially now behind us, clearly political risks remain. Um, given, I would say, that over the past week, it's it's been US politics that's been driving markets this week. Um, we had the Democrats winning both the Georgia runoff elections um, earlier this week, and, and Congress have now officially certified Biden's electoral victory, albeit not before protesters stormed the Capitol on Wednesday. I think we should probably start with you, Blake. Um, we had 10-year Treasuries breakthrough uh a fairly significant that 1% level um, earlier this week, which I guess has been fairly significant moves in the market. And, and that's what's been driving um, the rest of, of global markets. So what's your latest thoughts on, on rates markets today? Yeah, as you mentioned, that uh, move through 1%, um, you know, was pretty notable. We haven't been through 1% since the outbreak of the pandemic. Uh, and we moved through it pretty convincingly. Um, I'd, I'd say in the trading sense, uh, since the close of the Georgia elections, we have, um, you know, that move has seemed to, to lose a little bit of steam. We've, um, you know, talked to a number of counts who had previously before the elections expressed buying interest in tens around the 1% level. Um, you know, that hasn't materialized in size, but it, it is notable that the, um, you know, the kind of sell-off has slowed a little bit uh, uh, in more recent trading. Um, I think most of that sell-off was really driven by expectations for increased stimulus. Um, I think a lot of people looked at the results of the Georgia election, um, you know, which will hand a trifecta to Democrats. They'll have the House, the control of the House, the Senate, uh, and the White House now. Um, looked at that and said, okay, we can really expect some more significant uh, um COVID relief or stimulus coming down the pikes, uh, you know, likely Q1, Q2. Um, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know, you're probably going to guess I'm a little bit more pessimistic on that front. Um, you know, that th there's, I think, some some important dynamics there that a lot of people are kind of glancing over. I think I think what the markets have done in, in some respect is basically look at the results of Georgia and say this is a delivery of the kind of blue wave that everybody was talking about back in November. Um, and if you remember at the time, um, a lot of people, including ourselves, were expecting, um, you know, a very strong performance uh, uh, from Democrats in November that would basically give them this big mandate to come in and do a lot of spending, a lot of um, not just COVID relief, but but stimulus and infrastructure spending further down the line. Um, obviously, that didn't materialize. And I think um, for a lot of market participants, they looked at the results of, of the Georgia election and said, OK, this kind of is, is a continuation of that theme. I don't really see that as the case. Um, you know, back then we were really thinking that, you know, as I mentioned, there would be this big mandate, a, a clear mandate coming in to, to uh, deliver on a lot of their legislative priorities, but also um, we had ex expected Democrats to have a stronger lead in the Senate such that they could have um, ended the filibuster, which in the US, if you remember, filibuster rule is something that can be deployed in the Senate um, instead of a simple majority, bills essentially uh, um, have to pass with a 60 vote majority. Um, if they had had a, a, a big lead in the Senate, they would have been able to end that rule. But as it stands with just a 50-50 split, Democrats do not have the vote to, to, to do away with that rule. 
And so what that means is that basically any type of big package they do is going to have to um, likely uh, raise 60 votes, not a simple 51 uh, uh, to get passed. So that really limits a lot of the things in my mind that they're going to be able to do. Um, they have a few options. They can do this process we call reconciliation here. It's this really quirky rule that uh, allows for certain types of bills to be passed with a simple majority. But you can really only do one of those a year. Uh, and also there's all kinds of restrictions on how you can uh, uh, how you can pass those bills. Most importantly, they have to be, uh, uh, you know, budget neutral along several different respects, uh, which means you have to add some kind of revenue raisers to the bills to get them through. And that's where you really run into problems, because even if you can get, um, you know, get all the Democrats on board for more spending, uh, if you start having to add in things like tax hikes or, or other types of revenue raisers, you may not even get to that 50, 50 vote threshold. So, so we're still a little pessimistic on that front. Um, you know, it's, it's worth noting equity seemed a little bit more aligned with our view. They really didn't, um, they really didn't respond, you know, as strongly as rates. Um, so, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how things kind of pan out over the next few days, but um, you know, if, if that move continues to stall, we would be looking to fade here pretty soon. Okay, so even if we don't think that this necessarily means heavier stimulus in a baseline recovery, surely it means that there'll um, still be a higher likelihood of support if the recovery is slower than we're expecting or, or COVID trends pan out worse than we're expecting over the coming few weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that's probably the, um, you know, one way you do get to more stimulus is if things get a lot worse. Um, but, you know, from, from, from an economic or market standpoint, is that really, um, you know, is that a big risk on uh, if things have to get much, much worse on the economic front to see more stimulus uh, that that would seem to me to some degree to net out. Um, you know, I think what most people had really been and I think what rates markets are really reacting to is that we're going to get stimulus, even if the recovery continues on track. Um, you know, that, that regardless of what happens with this current outbreak, we're still going to see, you know, the $2,000 checks that Biden has talked about or, or some other measures of spending, um, even as that recovery is, is continuing. So, so that's what I think markets have really reacted to. Um, but yes, it, it does, I think, uh, uh, probably take a little bit of the downside risk of, you know, worsening of the current outbreak away. Okay, sticking with um, politics um, for now, uh, but switching gears to the UK, because since we last recorded our Boncast, we now have um, a long-awaited Brexit deal in the UK. So, um, Theo, can you just update us quickly on, um, A, what you think this deal means for markets and, and what your kind of outlook is from here, now that that sort of tail-risk scenario of a, a no-deal no Brexit sorry, is, is behind us? Yeah, I think it is It is a game changer for the market. It is very important. We've got uh, a deal and the market um, had to price the probability of no deal and the market had to trade inflation expensive at the front end of the curve. So the market was pretty much scared. Will there be a no deal? Will inflation spike up? What will happen? Will we have tariffs, non-tariff barriers, et cetera, et cetera? Um, but this is now being priced out. And this is significant because in the inflation market, we talk about uh, cheaper valuations as those fears uh, have to meet realistic expectations. And in reality, uh, well, inflation inflation may not prove to be as high as the market expects. So this, this is significant. 
the deal and Brexit and politics, they are a lot more significant for inflation than they are for uh, conventional rates. Um, for conventional rates, there are still some discussions with regards to lower rates. So this is something that cannot be excluded um, and QE is ongoing. So we don't necessarily have a direct signal on what to do with rates. Um, therefore, I think that this is a theme which uh, should make you know, all investors, uh, especially the inflation investors, more relieved. Um, but at the same time, those who are on the rate side, uh, they probably need, will need to focus on other things such as COVID and, uh, you know, the comments that we get and the actions that we see both from the government and the Bank of England. So this is really the overview. And this is what I see in terms of politics and how it plays out for the market. Okay. Um, so now in Europe, Giles, I guess actually for once the political calendar seems fairly quiet as we look ahead to 2021. Um, but where um, I guess will be the most important event is um, the German elections closer towards the end of the year. But ahead of that, we have the CDU leadership election next week, um, which will be, well, very important given they're the, the party that, that's currently leading the polls and, and likely to be, as it looks at the moment, in the next government. So what are our updated thoughts on that and, and what it means for, well, the direction of fiscal policy, given that's been a big call of ours heading into 2021? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really striking that nobody's talking about this, at least not in the English-speaking world, as far as I can tell. <clears throat> and it is, it's super important. And this is really the first, this is the precursor, I suppose. This is what's going to set the scene for the way that people talk about the German elections, which, by the way, is supposed to be end of September uh, for the rest of the year. And it's absolutely, it's a turning point year. It's a pivotal year in, in German politics. And of course, you know, Europe is largely guided by what Germany wants, and that includes fiscal policy. So yeah, it's super important. Um, I'm not sure how much else I can say other than that it's important because you know, we know three of the main candidates, but we were you know, just checking through the CDU statutes this morning, um, Imogen and Dai, and it turns out that you know, effectively, you know, the candidates, it's, it, it's pretty fluid. I mean, they can be proposed right up until last moment, um, including during the, uh, the process in the, con in, in the party congress. And you know, I, I think at least for, for us, the visibility is pretty, uh, pretty low on, on which way that might go. And you know, clearly, I think that the expectation in markets is that we'll end up with someone probably reasonably centrist and you know, I mean, we'll just take it from there, but you know, that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, it's definitely possible, for example, that um, you know, someone with a little bit more of a conservative right-wing bias um, does end up, you know, to trying to bring the party back to uh, pre-Merkel um, you know, settings, I suppose, and that might end up, you know, we're you know, driving a full-scale sort of reconfiguration of the right of the spectrum. So, yeah, I mean, at the moment, the CDU is polling really well, uh, but that's partly pandemic-related. It's partly Merkel-related, you know, and not clear at all that that will be sustained into September. So it's all to play for, and um, yeah, this will be a major market theme. We'll probably be talking quite a bit about that this year. Okay, so definitely something to watch over over the next week then. The other major market theme, well, which is is related and we've just talked about it a lot, but is um, I guess the still expansive fiscal policy that we see in Europe this year. And obviously that means um, still a fair amount of uh, government bond supply to come. 
Um, we know that traditionally issuers like to front load in January and, and we don't expect this year to be any different. Um, I think we ran the numbers earlier this week and we expect around 130 billion of uh, sovereign issuance in January alone this year. Um, how do we think the market will digest that? You know, I know we clearly have the ECB coming back and, and doing their QE purchases. Do we think this is going to be a problem or, or do we think that that the market will easily be able to take down the, the remaining supply? Yeah, I'm, I maybe just start answering that by saying that I was looking through trades that were recommended by our sales and trading uh, recently in a, in a circular email here, and I won't you know, talk about the details of that, but I was quite struck by just how many of those were basically motivated by um, the the front loading of supply. Uh, you know, it's clear clear majority of those trades. Um, for us, I think that, you know, the, the simple thing to say is that the total sort of net supply that's going to be pushed into the market after the ECB takes its share is going to be around 50 billion less, roughly speaking, than last year, um, you know, once you consider corporates and everything. Um, and, you know, so a, a priori, there's not really going to be a problem, particularly if people are, you know, if there's an underlying bid that's pretty strong because people are worried about COVID trends and, and so on. And I think they probably will be. You know, the, the, the concern, I suppose, if there is one, is that there wasn't necessarily a particularly strong effort being uh, made by investors or dealers to kind of create space, you know, to set up short for supply, just to make sure that everything goes off well in the first part of this year. I think there's probably an assumption that there wouldn't be very much of a concession to take um, you know, to take advantage of. And in any case, the ECB would just you know, would be there in size to smooth out everything. So far, what can you say? I mean, listen, we've had a very strong reception in credit. Um, you know, that's pretty obvious. Uh, we had uh, you know, another 100 billion book for the the Italy syndication in the first week of the year. You know, there's clearly very, very strong demand. I would say, you know, we would expect the demand to be strongest for, for you know, anything that's kind of got some spread in it. You know, I don't think that the markets are going to be quite as enthusiastic about, um, about core fixed income uh, around about these levels. And, you know, actually we are a little bit higher, you know, yes, in sympathy with the US, but you know, I think that that is also a reflection of the, um, the kind of overvaluation in, in European fixed income, at least you know, that's uh, our, our perspective on it. Okay, thanks, Charles. And, and Theo, I know that the supply story in the UK is, is something that you've been um, talking about over the last few days, as well as, as a big theme for the coming weeks. Um, I suppose with this Brexit hurdle um, now cleared to a certain extent, does that pave the way for a lot of kind of investor demand to take down this net supply that we're going to see over the next few weeks? Or, or are you more concerned um, there as well? I think that um, right now we're entering a phase where net uh, issuance, so basically the difference between what is being issued and what is being uh, absorbed uh, by the BOE, so that net issuance will be uh, again positive, so it will rise again. Uh, this is big news because we had almost one whole month of negative uh, net issuance. Now this means that the market will need to cheapen. The other point is that this additional issuance will come at a time of expensive valuations across guilds. Uh, 
So what I do expect is investors to be looking at the UK market as a way to express uh, bearish positions, given that valuations are expensive, especially uh, versus the US, for example. Okay, so just um, to complete the picture, I guess, Blake, does the um, election news this week and, and the Democrats win in Georgia change your view of, of what this means, I guess, for the debt ceiling and, and for bill supply in the US? No, and I mean, um, to kind of follow on um, what, what these guys were saying, I mean, you know, we have a similar situation in the US where, um, um, you know, I think we're, we're, supply is actually going to be a bigger story this year than it was last year, despite everybody you know, talking about it uh, um, pretty heavily uh, uh, last year due to the fact that Treasury was kind of very aggressively ramping up auction sizes. But, you know, kind of when you look at the numbers of uh, what issuance is going to be this year, we, we have coupon auctions basically staying flat throughout the year. And, um, and, and, you know, those increases have stopped. But what you're left with is a run rate that is much, much higher than it was last year. And at the same time, um, you know, we have the Fed continuing to purchase uh, throughout the end of this year is our expectation. Um, but that's still a lot smaller than what they were buying last year. Um, if you remember in March and April, they came out and um, were kind of hitting the market every single day in very, very large size, uh, wiped out a huge amount of supply for the market. So this year is actually going to be a bigger uh, a bigger year in our minds for coupon takedown. And I separate that out because as you mentioned, death ceiling is going to be a huge deal in the middle of the year for bill supply. So the front end is going to see some really um, drastic dynamics in my mind um, due to the reinstatement of the death ceiling. And I don't want to get into all the mechanics of how that works here, but uh, the way the laws are written essentially say that treasury has to get their cash balance down to 130 billion by July 31st. Um, Right now, they're sitting on about 1.6 trillion in cash. So, getting from 1.6 trillion uh, all the way down to 130 billion, while the coupon auction, again, as I just mentioned, the coupon auction is still raising all of this new cash. They don't want to touch that. So, they not only have to offset the cash that's being raised on the coupon side, they also have to pull down this 1.6 trillion. So, um, you know, obviously, the, the stimulus package that was just passed, um, you know, that spending will help move some of this cash off of their balance sheet. Um, but in the end, they're going to have to cut bills. I have about 1.3 trillion in bill cuts uh, into the middle of the year. That's that's a you know a historic cut in bills. We've never seen anything of that magnitude in 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 U.S. history. I mean, this is a really significant move. Um, as you mentioned, Georgia elections may have changed the dynamics there. Um, you know, with with Democrats holding uh, uh, all the levers here in government there is the possibility that we get an earlier deal on the debt ceiling or they, they sign some kind of deal that, that staves off that reinstatement date for, for a period of time. Um, but I just don't see it as likely. Um, when we look at all the past debt ceiling issues that we've had in the US, um, the real impetus for Congress to get their gear, to get, you know, to, to get their uh, process together and get something signed is usually the date when Treasury's about to run out of cash, which you know, we, I separate out the reinstatement date for debt ceiling. This is when the debt, debt ceiling goes back into effect. And then there's a later date when they actually can't raise any more money, they're out of cash, and the U.S. risks a default. That's usually the date when we see Congress come together and, and pass a deal. Um, and I think that's still going to be the dynamic here, even with Democrats holding all the houses, that they're really not going to do some kind of deal until they risk a default. So that means this big pay down that I'm expecting is likely to, to, to still happen. Um, so, so I think that on, on the supply front, that's really going to be the big theme that, that we're all kind of watching. Of course, like if they do come together and sign something early, that'd be a, a very positive surprise for markets and avoid a lot of 
a, a lot of pain, but I, I just, I'm not there. Okay, that makes sense. So thanks, Blake, and, and um, thanks to Theo and Giles as well. It seems like we've got a lot of themes to already be thinking about um, for the start of this year, and, and it already looks like it's, it's shaping up to be um, a very interesting one. So we will catch up on all of those themes and probably more next week. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.